or you may be. I guess I only really have one announcement I got thinking as I'm watching the dynamics here. Um, I think we'll just take the do not sit on the back row signs off because uh, everyone really is getting old enough that they don't need too much floor space anymore. Unless some of you really want to start the cycle again and uh, have some more wee little ones. Uh, but it appears that everyone, even including people with children now, are scared of the back row. Uh, nobody will sit there. It's like the back row has become the front row. Now we got the front row. So maybe we should make the back two rows where people don't sit. We'll get everybody up close. But uh, I don't really think we need uh, that anymore. We pretty well decide where we're going to sit and and uh, I, my feeling really is that the ends of the rows are better for people with really small children who need to lay down anyway. If, you have, if you're on the back row, you about have to put them behind you, and then people want to walk on them. So uh, really, if you have some that need to be down on the floor still, uh, it'd be better to get on an end row toward the rear, maybe the first back or the next to the back row, and... And that way you can put the child down beside you and, and uh, it's easier to take care of them. So, fair game now. Just go for it. Let's go back to the book of Ephesians. You may recall that we were talking about the first church in Revelation 2 of Ephesus and how God gave to that particular group of people a lot of compliments, a lot of thanks for what they had done, a lot of kudos and attaboys and gold stars or whatever you will, uh, but they had a problem, essentially, and that is that they had lost their first love, their zeal, their energy, their desire, uh, their push, if you will. And God is very, very concerned that He have our whole heart and that we be wholehearted. And if we are giving less than wholeheartedness to God, then that upsets Him. And it didn't matter how much good works they had had, if their heart wasn't right with God in heaven then he said, I will remove your candlestick. In other words, I will take away my gift of eternal life that I promise those who will do what I ask. That's a pretty serious threat, if you stop and think about it. Now, I'm not saying we are Ephesus, as I said before. I pose the question, what if we were that? What if that instruction was for you and for me? Now, we only have each week essentially two hours of formal instruction and guidance and direction and teaching in a formal setting such as Sabbath service and the occasional Bible study. We need to be alert. We need to be awake. We need to be prepared 
to come here and get as much as we can possibly wring out of it. Now, if we find ourselves drifting, if we find ourselves not alert, we find ourselves half asleep, then perhaps we're not into it enough. Perhaps we're not paying the kind of attention we ought to pay. You know, if there's something that you only receive once in a while, and it's something that's beneficial and good and that you desire, you might prepare for it pretty diligently. You know, there are a lot of things in life that we would spend a lot of time getting ready for, anticipating, wanting to be involved in. And I think we look forward, for the most part, to coming to Sabbath services. But is it something we prepare for? Is it something that we put our heart into? Is it something that we maybe get on our knees and pray about? That God will give us whatever it is that we need that day to help us be what we should be? To inspire us, to correct us, to guide us, lead us, instruct us, teach us? If you prepare for it ahead, chances are you'll get more out of it. I know I feel a need to do that personally because sometimes I feel here are all these people and their time is valuable and I don't want to waste it and I don't want to embarrass God by the production I give. I want the time that I talk to be worthwhile and effective for you. So I, almost without fail, pray ahead of the Sabbath service that God open my mouth and put His words there that I might speak what He once said. And that's the way I want it to be. Not just my opinions, my attitudes, my desires, but I want any words that come out of my mouth to expound God's words to reflect what they say and the meaning He has and what it is that we might need that particular day. And I find very often, as I'm speaking, that I will go into areas or come up with thoughts I haven't had before even that might click in and crystallize. And I think that part of that has to stem from the preparation of asking God to do that. And it goes both ways. If I didn't do that and don't do that, I, I would be very remiss. And it wouldn't be fair to you. But I wonder if we've thought about it that way. That we have a responsibility in preparing for Sabbath service. To be sure that we've had enough sleep, enough prayer, enough meditation or thought and so come with an eager, anticipatory attitude that we might derive benefit. I can remember sitting through services over the decades, and it just seemed like they droned on and on and on and on. And it was very hard to get much from it, and you found your mind drifting somewhere else, going somewhere else. And that's a very difficult thing to fight. 
Now, I could all blame it on the preacher and go ahead and prop my eyelids up and, or prop my chin up like that or whatever and try to act like I was awake when I was sometimes sleeping. Now, I was blaming it all on the preacher and to, some, to a great degree, yeah, that's true. But we also have our own responsibility to be sure that we're primed and ready to learn whatever God might have for us. Now, we pray it at the beginning of the service, don't we? Whoever gives the prayer, that's one of the things they mention, that God give us the instruction, that He'll inspire us and help us and correct us and use various words of that kind to open the service. And I hope we believe that. I hope it's not just words. That really from our hearts, we want guidance and instruction and even just reminding, if nothing else, of who we need to be, what we need to be doing, what our attitudes should be. Because even today, as we go into some of these things in Ephesians, I doubt there's anything here that we haven't at one time or another heard. might be put a little bit differently than you might have heard it before, but it's essentially the same material. But it is vital material as well. I mean, how many Protestant sermons, how many sermons in the church of God itself have been preached about love, for instance? And it is the greatest thing. And it's rare to come up with a thought or an idea, perhaps, about it that is different than anything we've heard in the past. And yet... God says to a whole church, representing more than just a congregation in Ephesus, representing people at the end time, of whom we could be some, He said, it doesn't matter what all you've done and all the good works you've done, I'll compliment you on those. But if you don't have, have and rekindle that zeal and fervency of love, I'll remove your candlestick. Now, that's really basic, isn't it? But if you lose your salvation over it, it's scary. And something we should give, I think, great heed to. Now, Paul addressed the Ephesians, reminding them of what they had been given, and encouraged them that, yes, they indeed were truly of God. God had opened their minds and brought them to the truth. And even though they were Gentiles, it didn't matter. Once God opened their minds, they were as good as Israel, the same as Israel, grafted in. No different than. And that was hard for the Israelites who had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their father to accept and for the Gentiles themselves to feel that they were just as important to God as those who had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as their parents, grandparents. That too was a hurdle they had to cross. And there was a love problem there between the Israelites and the Gentiles. Now, why? I think we'll find the answer to that as we go along here. And it's 
root source is in thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Because fights, trouble, difficulties, relationship problems, essentially are one person thinking he or she or his or her attitude or his or her knowledge is higher and better than another person. Or that they themselves have intrinsically more worth than another person. And therefore they lift themselves up and look down upon the other in one form or another, and there is trouble. And vanity, self-centeredness, ego, and self is the opposite of outgoing love and concern for others. And you think, maybe, well, I don't put myself on a pedestal. What if it's only a pedestal that high? It doesn't have to be a big pedestal. All it has to be is you thinking your opinion is higher and better than someone else. Even if it's just by a little bit. I'm only a little better than that so-and-so. It's all it takes. And then trouble starts. So Paul was trying to get across to these people that they were all accepted by and acceptable to God, no matter what their background or race, and that if he had opened their minds, they were truly of God. Now we, who might, most of us, have Israelite blood coursing through our veins, we're the same as the Gentiles. What did God do? He divorced Israel for disobedience and what had been Gentile practices. They were constantly wanting to go to the Gentiles to find other gods, other ways of doing things. So God concluded them as Gentiles. Now, Gentile was not necessarily evil, as opposed to an Israelite. It was simply that God chose Abraham and then used Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the other brothers to start a line that he hoped would obey him because those were righteous people and he tried and proved them and thought, your children and grandchildren maybe will be a good example to the rest of the world and lead them to me. And they utterly failed. So what he did was divorce them. They were no longer connected with God. They were no longer living with God. They were no longer walking with God, eating and drinking and supping and sleeping with God. To put it on human terms. They didn't walk with deity anymore. Divorce is pretty final in the human frame, is it not? You split everything, including the sheets, the dogs, and the cats, and you go live somewhere else. And don't have much to do with each other except usually fighting over the kids or whatever. But the relationship is torn, wrenched, and wrested apart. 
and no longer is. Now we need to understand that that's what happened to Israel. They were no longer connected to God. Now what did Christ tell those who thought they were connected to God? Primarily the Jews. He said, I have nothing to do with you. And I will have nothing to do with you until you accept the teachers that I'm sending, which turned out to be the apostles. And he said, I'll have nothing to do with you and you'll not see me again until you accept them. And you know that has not been done to this day. He called them sepulchers and snakes and various other names then. And it hasn't gotten any better. Because the Jews as a whole have gotten more and more pagan in their religion century by century until it doesn't even look like the truth of God. Now we were of those divorced ones. We were out here in the world living like everyone else. Some of us were religious, but it was a false religion. The Jews in Christ's day were religious, but it was a false religion. And what did he say to them? You worship, you know not what. They thought they were worshiping God and they were worshiping the devil. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Now we have people in the church of God today who, not knowing what else to do at this point, are beginning to follow Judaism. Or at least the so-called Christian Jews, or Messianic Jews, the ones who have accepted Christ. All they did by becoming Messianic Jews was add to their paganism because they added Protestantism to their already pagan Judaism and became, if anything, worse. You see, I was a Methodist until I was about eight years of age. Then I got true religion. But what does it mean? What does it mean to have the truth of God if you don't follow through and have a true appreciation and zeal for God? What if you become lackadaisical and begin to take it somewhat for granted? That really bothers God. You know, even with our children, when they're little, they respond to us, they trust us, they believe us, they think we're God. Anything Daddy does, Johnny wants to do. And then they get about... 12, 13, 14 years of age. And then they don't believe anything you say much. Or if they do, they wouldn't want to admit it. If they're carnal. If they're normal. And your relationship goes through some pretty rocky times in most cases. 
because they're trying to find their own way. They're trying to find their own set of beliefs and ideas and philosophy of life. And sometimes they go through a lot of hormonal change. They go through a lot of turmoil. They listen to different ones. And they don't want to listen to their parents. At some point along there, they learn the eye roll. All right, Dad, Mom, get it over with so I can go do what I want to do. And the relationship truly suffers. Does the same thing happen to us in our relationship with God? Now, if people persist, the children get past some of that, <coughs> at some point, they begin to realize Dad and Mom did know some things after all. And maybe sometimes by hard and bitter experiences, they learn that Dad and Mom were speaking sense when to them it seemed nonsense. And we all went through that period of time coming into the truth where we began to realize that our sense was nonsense. Our religion was a false religion. And that we needed the true religion. And we became excited about it. We really believed it. And we worked hard at doing the things that we needed to do. Quit eating pig and you know, all the various things we learned about we shouldn't do. And we embrace those. Shouldn't keep Sunday anymore. Christmas and Easter. We threw all that out. We made some pretty major changes. Wholesale changes. In our lives. And in our attitudes and approach to life. But then after a while, you kind of get used to that. And it is only natural and human that some of that zeal and emotion begins to fade. Now, it has to be rekindled. It's kind of like a fireplace. You put wood on, the fire comes up, got a nice warm fire. Then a few hours later, the room starts getting cold. You've got to restoke the fire. It has to have fuel to keep going. Those are the reasons it's so important to pray to study, to meditate on the things of God. Because if we don't, we begin to drift. We begin to take it for granted. And it's so easy to happen. <clears throat> we used to do Bible study because they said we had to have a half hour of it a day. So we did it by rote in order to make a show of righteousness. But often it became empty. I won't say it was harmful. Probably did us some good. But was the heart in it? And were we there because we recognized a great void in ourselves and a need to be close to God? If we don't want to study, if we don't want to pray, it's our carnality, it's our humanness, it's ourselves getting in our own way of, of accomplishing the things that we need to accomplish. The human mind, human nature, is enmity to God. Pure and simple. It is rebellious to God by nature. 
So a lot of our problem is selfishness, laziness, and vanity, and rebellion against God is what it is. And our humanness gets in the way of us becoming spiritual in our thinking. And walking in the flesh is so much easier and more comfortable than walking in the Spirit, because walking in the Spirit is hard to do. Because our very humanity pulls us the other direction. Do I know I need to lose 20 pounds? Yeah, I'm fairly aware of it. Every time I put my pants on. Do I know what I need to do to get rid of it? Yes. Do I do it? Apparently not. You see, my body, my mind rebel at the idea of eating less. My body and mind rebel against exercising more. My joints are beginning to as well, but that's a different story. But my mind can begin to use my old joints as an excuse, too. Because it's a mental process. Well, it's a very simple thing. It's not real spiritual, is it? But I think it shows how hard it is for us to do the simplest things because human nature, our comfort levels, our desires lead us in a different direction. Now, some of you are skinny. I hate you all. (laughs) But you have different problems. Looking down on fat people is one of them. Making snide remarks about how you eat like a bear. It's probably deep enough to go into that, but we all have different issues. Now, some of us have nearly every issue, but, you know, some of us have this problem, some have that problem. But every one of us has problems. And that's partly what Paul is talking about here. He says, some of you have problems because you're Israelites and you're proud of it and shouldn't be. And some of you are feeling left out and inferior because you're Gentiles by blood. And he says, you all have the truth of God and God accepts you all. And you need to get over these feelings of inferiority or superiority that you might have and come to recognize that we're all inferior to God, and therefore we need to do what is necessary to become like Him, and not worry about color of skin, background, or anything else. Because we have a common problem. It doesn't matter about our background or race or anything else. We all share human nature. And he had to tell the Israelites, the Gentiles, some of them in their cultures, do better than you do by nature, who have the truth of God. 
in their society, apart from the Bible completely, some of them realize you shouldn't lie, cheat, steal, murder, commit adultery, and fornication. And they have heavy penalties in their society for doing those things. Because they realize that those are crimes against each other that break a society down. So he had to get on the self-righteous Israelites for thinking they were better than the Gentiles. And he had to encourage and pick up the Gentiles because they thought they were inferior to the Israelites. It was all about vanity and ego and self-esteem and self-evaluation and putting ourselves on a big or a little pedestal. Or removing the pedestal and sitting under a barrel and crying. Because we're the lowest of the low. Now we're all the children of God. That's what he's trying to get across here. He said at the end of chapter 2, we read it last time, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. He doesn't divide Israel from the Gentiles here, but he says fellow citizens with the saints, with the church of God, the household of God. doesn't matter what our background or anything about the past. We're all one in Christ. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Emmanuel himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal. A temple has to be fitly framed together. A house, when it's built, has to be properly framed so that all the pieces fit. Anyone who's done any carpentering at all knows that a saw is one of your primary tools. If you're trying to build something, you have to cut all the pieces to make them fit. And if you're not good with a measuring tape and a saw, then one of your primary tools is a sledgehammer. And you'll make them fit. I've pounded on whole walls with a sledgehammer to try to make it fit when I didn't build it right. Need to move it over an inch or two or whatever. Now, he wants us to fit together carefully. That's why he uses sawing and hammering on us to mold us into the proper shape, length, width, height, and breadth so that we might fit in the temple of God. That it be fitly framed and joined together. Now there's a house down the road here on the way to Hurricane. Off on the left, you've probably seen it. And they were trying to do some kind of a desert motif, I guess. It's off kind of the left there. And it's got all these funny shapes that go up out of it. Seemingly out of nowhere. It doesn't look like a house. It looks like a cactus that didn't make it. Or a rock formation that's weird. What are those? I don't know whether they tried to make cactuses or hoodoos. <laughs> but all over the roof, you got these funny looking things sticking up. 
Now, to each his own, I suppose. But if you're going to build something like that, maybe you should put it at least a mile off the highway so the rest of us don't have to look at it. But now if God is going to put a building together, He wants everything to fit and work and have symmetry and be beautiful. And if you try to build a house and you have three boards that just decide that they want to be off to the side, then that doesn't work. It's not in the plan. And if we have character issues or thoughts or uh, habits or whatever that don't fit in a godly society, then those have to be sawed and cut and hammered and fixed so that we all fit together. Christ is the chief cornerstone. <laughs> and the rest of the stones then have to be patterned after him. Now, if the devil was the chief cornerstone, as it is of the Methodist and the Catholic and the Lutheran and the Mormon and the Shintoist religions and all the others, then the building has to be framed to look like Satan. And that's the way the religions are. So we are in a satanic world. He is the prince of the power of the air and the the current ruler of this world. And what we have to grasp and understand is that essentially everything in this world is patterned after, shaped like, acts like, and is like Satan the devil. Who can not appear as a drug addict, but as an angel of light even. And there's where some of the confusion comes. Because he's a liar. It's pretense. It's hypocrisy. Because it isn't founded on being godlike. So if we pattern ourselves after the thinking processes, the ways, the approaches of this world, then we've got the wrong cornerstone. That's exactly what Christ was trying to explain to the Pharisees. You're like your father, the devil. <clears throat> You're not like my father in heaven. Do we begin to maybe better grasp and understand why God says come out of this world? Satan can make a lot of things attractive. Even socialism can be, to a lot of people, attractive. It's easy to get into the mode and the attitude of the government will take care of me. They'll give me my health care. They'll give me my food. They'll give me this. They'll give me that. They'll give me anything I want. And the government, in promoting socialism does those very things, and they appear good. And sometimes they can be a help when you're in need. But that's how they hook the whole society on it. So that eventually we all become slaves, and they are our masters. And that is exactly the way Satan does things. <clears throat> he makes them appear good and helpful. 
And first thing you know, you owe your soul to the government, like the old song of owing your soul to the company store. And you don't realize what has happened. Our whole society is headed that way. And this so-called Christian nation, we're not just in socialism now, we are in fascism. Corporatism and the government beginning to take over the rule. Now that is Satan, the devil's way. Are we fashioning ourselves to look like Christ, who is our chief cornerstone, or more like Satan the devil, who is the cornerstone of the world? Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her plagues and her sins. <clears throat> we got to be fitly framed together into a holy temple in the eternal, in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So he comes and lives in us as a part of his temple, as individuals. And he can't stand sin and unholiness. So when we are unholy in thought and deed, it makes it very difficult for Christ to live in us. Because he needs to be in a place that is holy. Now, why did he go to all that elaborate, time-consuming, wealth-consuming thing of building the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, gilding it in certain ways, making it special, and then forbidding anyone but the high priest from going in there, and then only once a year? Because as the habitation of God, he wanted Israel to understand that that was not a common place. It was not a usual place. It was a special place. And it was made special by the presence of God. And you did not enter into the presence of God simply, easily, Quickly, frequently, and dirtily. Even the high priest had to wash himself carefully. He had to dress himself properly. He had to make sacrifices for himself before he could go in and sacrifice for the people. Because God was there. He was the cornerstone. It was that God was trying to get something across to him, that he was much higher than they were, and that he could not be treated commonly. And that resounds through the centuries to us today, that God wants a holy temple, a holy habitation. And therefore, everything that is unholy or unclean has to be removed. And we'll find that it requires love to be fitly framed together so that all the parts fit. You know, every one of us here has to change attitudes, has to change approaches, has to change 
judgments in order to be fitly framed and close together with everyone else here. Because just in this room, there is a great diversity of backgrounds, of personalities, of teaching, of training, parental guidance, experiences. And every one of us here is quite different from everyone else. Can you think of any two people here that are just alike? You parents, are your children just alike? No, they're not. It's our experience that you can have three, four, five, six, eight, ten kids, and every one of them has their own personality. They're different. Now, they may have some similarities because of genetic and background and parental training, but they have different personalities. We're all different. Now, when you have people that are that divergent and God brings you all together and throws you into a bunch, it is only natural that there be arguments, that there be attitudes, that there be uh, unforgiveness, that there be judgments, that we'll find somebody who thinks more like we do and get together against those who do not think like we do. Because even with the diversity here, you will find some that you have a closer affinity to than others. Some you visit with, talk with, share things with easier than others. And it's easy to gang up on the others who are quite different from you. Just because they're different from you doesn't make them wrong, doesn't make them bad. They're probably here, we're all probably here for the same reasons, are we not? To find out what God wants us of us, how to do it, what to do about it, and then work at it. We're all here for the same reason, and yet we're all very different. And if we're going to be fitly framed together and be a beautiful temple for God, that He would turn and shine His face on it and bless it, then it needs to look a lot like Him. It's that simple and that difficult. You know, it's fairly easy to throw together a shelter. It's quite another to finally craft a building. Now, I think God intended us in temporary dwellings out here. He didn't expect us to come out here and build big mansions. That wasn't the point at this juncture. What He wanted us to do was come out here and live however we could out of debt and build a holy spiritual temple that fitly frames together, where all the pieces fit together and get along in harmony and work well together. You see, we had fancy buildings and jet airplanes in Pasadena, Big Sandy, and Brickett Wood. We had fine business suits. <coughs> we had new cars. We had an auditorium, an auditorium, that was extremely well built and fit together to make a magnificent building. One of the finest buildings, frankly, on earth. And a hall of administration beside it. 
that was a very well-built, beautiful building in which worldly politics were carried on. We had some of the finest homes built by Hewlett C. Merritt and various other millionaires who would be billionaires today with the finest woods from all over Asia and Africa, imported things that no longer could be found. And as students, we lived and worked in and even went into classes in some of those buildings that were the finest buildings on earth. And I mean that literally. That's not just blowing smoke because Ambassador College had them. They had some of the finest woods and the finest workmanship. They couldn't get any better than that, no matter who you were or where you were. Built by leading wealthy industrialists. We had a well-manicured set of gardens and grounds, meticulously taken care of. Twigs, leaves, everything picked up. It was beautiful. The campus was pretty much fitly framed together to be a show place. But it became political. And it became corrupt. And people tried to leapfrog over one another to be deacons and elders and evangelists and even apostles. And it didn't get along that well, finally. It started coming apart. So God brought us out here and said, I don't want you to have any fancy buildings. I want you to live in old mobile homes and buildings you make out of coals and different colors and different shapes. He didn't care about that. He wanted us just to be out of debt and live godly and come to be fitly framed together so that we might be a beautiful spiritual organism working together to have a godly society. That's what he wants of us. Worldwide Church of God took on a lot of debt. God told us, get out of debt. Don't be borrowers, be lenders. And even that is very difficult for us because it's so easy to whip out a credit card and go into debt. It's not so much your checkbook because you've got to kind of have money in the bank to write the check. But the credit card is the downfall. And if you can't control your credit cards, you need to just blank, frankly get rid of them. We need to get out of debt. We need to live within our means. We were told that by Herbert Armstrong decades ago and ignored it. So we still have our wants, and we're going to fulfill our wants, whether we can afford them or not. It's going to say in here, when we get down to it, that we need to be in a position where we can give to those who have need. Not be in the category of need to be given to. 
Now, we can find ourselves in that position at times, but we need to work our way out of it. And it may have been our credit cards that helped get us there in the first place, and maybe there's a lesson to learn. And maybe we need to go back and understand what God told ancient Israel. He says, you do not, you are not to be borrowers, you are to be lenders. And if you do it the opposite way, the world will become the head and you'll become the tail. And that's where we are as a nation. And it's sad that we, as individuals, bought into that and find ourselves with credit card debt and debt on appliances and debt on cars and debt on everything. Debt on houses. Well, thankfully, God got us out here. And I I don't think anybody here has a mortgage on their house. Maybe they're still paying credit cards for materials. I don't know. But we don't have bank-held mortgages. But we've got to get out of that indebtedness to this world. And we're emotionally indebted to it. Because of our ways of thinking that are still carnal and worldly all too often. We still do things the way the world does things. God is about to take this country into terrible captivity because we disobeyed Deuteronomy. And anyone who is in debt is going to be in danger. Because if you owe money to the banks, the credit cards, they'll come after you. It makes you vulnerable. I know you can't do anything about it today. It's Sabbath. You probably can't do much to get about it tomorrow. But we can begin to change our habits. We can begin to take control of our lives. So that we are fitly framed together in holiness, not like this world. And he gave us opportunity to come out here and to be without mortgages. And we need to be thankful for that and build on it by getting rid of the rest of our debt and control and curb our appetites so that we don't go by the things we want, but only those things we need and wait for them until we can obtain them without having to go into debt to do it. That's where God wants us. He does not want a temple that is indebted to this world. Doesn't want it. He wants us to overcome it and get away from it. That's just one way that I pick on that came to mind. So we're all here to be a part of God's building framed together with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone to look like him. He didn't go into debt to this world. The world is indebted to him. He was the lender. He loaned his life as he lived and as he died. 
He gave everything he had for the sake of others. This world lives for the moment for the sake of itself. That's not what we're called to do. I have a credit card so I can have what I want. We must manage our finances in a godly fashion. That is just one of the areas where we need to look like Christ and not like the world. It's a very simple one, but it's a very important one. And we need to go through whatever privation we need in order to achieve that. We're talking about the same things here. I mentioned earlier, I need to lose 20 pounds. Am I willing to go through what's necessary to accomplish that? Now it's all hanging out here for everybody to see. I'm embarrassed to even bring it up. Not only that, I guess I'll be embarrassed if I don't do something about it. Because then somebody six months later will say, you're still fat. Well, that's one of those things that shows. Then we have other things that don't show as much that are just as bad or worse. Are we selfish? Or do we do what we need to do to solve the problems we have that are ungodly? So he says, we're all here to build the spiritual temple. Then we get into chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Emmanuel for you Gentiles. He had made himself, and God had made him, a slave. And he said in another place, we're slaves to Christ. He died for us, we accepted that penalty, and we became subservient to Him. Not to the God of this world, but to Christ. His slaves. The devil is about to make slaves of the whole world. And we are the few who choose to be the slaves of Christ. And that means in every way. To live by every word of God. So he said, I'm a prisoner. I'm a slave of Christ. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, to you were. Have you heard what God did in his life, he says, so that he might send me to teach his way to you? And I willingly accepted that, he said. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words. He had written about the great mystery of God in 1 Corinthians. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So he says, when you read this letter, put it together with what you've heard, and understand that God is sending me, or Paul, he said, to you for your benefit. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. <laughs> Remember the scripture that says the former prophets, those of old, desired to know and understand the mystery of God? And it wasn't revealed to them. But to the apostles of that time and the prophets of that day, the twelve plus others, it had been revealed 
And part of that was the mystery, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That they're fully a part of the church of God. There is no difference, spiritually speaking, between Israelite blood and Gentile blood. Because Israel failed and was divorced, and therefore God opened it up to everyone and gave them equal footing, totally equal. An Israelite, an Asian, an African, a Mexican, a Slobovian, are all the same in Christ if they follow Christ, and they're all in the same in Satan if they follow Satan. That's just what it comes down to. That's the bottom line. Fellow heirs means that, you know, if somebody dies, they list the heirs, usually it's just family. So the Israelites think, well, it must just be us. We're just the ones in the family. No, God says, no, if you obey me, you're all in the same family. There's no difference. So the only difference now is not between the Israelite and the Gentile. The only difference is those who follow Satan and those who follow God. That's the only difference. Verse 7, Wherefore I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effectual working of his power. <coughs> he had been an enemy. He had been a follower of Satan the devil. Not knowing it, thinking he was a worshiper of, of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he didn't know he was an enemy to God. He thought he was a true believer in God. Not in Christ, because he rejected him but in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it had to be the gift of the grace of God given to the, by the effectual working of His power. And the same is true of us. Is it God working in your life that makes a difference? What about your brothers, your sisters, your father, your mother, your aunts, your uncles, who could care less and are enemies of what you're doing today? Are you any better than them? Am I better than my cousins that I grew up with? No. We were all about the same. We're just alike. Same family. Why am I here and they're out there in the world? Only by the grace of God. Maybe I had better understand that they were a little better than I was. Because God calls the weak in the base. It wasn't because I was better than my cousins that I'm here. It might be that I was worse than them. So God wanted me out of the family to be the one that He would work with to show them later that, <laughs> you know, that guy was worse than you, and yet he's going to be in the kingdom of God, and you can be too. So because we're here doesn't make us better than the families we came from. Who knows all the reasoning God put into calling you? 
instead of someone else in your family or somebody from another family. But he did. Individually, he selected us, opened our minds. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father drawing. None. Can't do it on your own. I don't care who you are or how bad you were. He had to call you. And he has that personal interest in you, whatever your name is. Do we grasp that? How incredible that is. Out of over six billion people, he called you and me. That should humble us. Because there are a lot of people in this world that are a whole lot smarter than any of us. Some of them, by nature, have higher morals, higher thoughts than we naturally did. Hopefully ours are higher now because of God in our life. The true God, with true religion. Now, what does he say? It's by the grace of God to me who am less than the least of all saints. <laughs> is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? So he took someone who had been a very proud Judahite. The religion of Judaism is the tribe of Benjamin, but he was religiously a Jew. And had been very high in Judaism. And God had taken him down and blinded him and made him nothing in his own eyes, where he had to grope to walk and see and be led by the hand. And he had killed God's people. He says that at another place. So he was, in that sense, the least qualified. An enemy of God, if you will. Outright. And yet, look what God was able to do with Paul, who had been Saul. He could do the same with us. He can use us to his purposes, for his goals. We weren't any worse than Paul, Saul was, were we? No. He was a sinner just like we were. And he was the chiefest of sinners in his own works because he killed the people of God. So is there hope for you and me? Yeah. There's a lot of hope for us. That's what he's trying to get across. He says, of all the people on this earth that he could have called to do the job of preaching to the Gentiles who were godless, he chose one of the worst people there could have been. And in that we should all have hope. So that he should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery. Which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Emmanuel the Christ. Before it's over, all men will see the mystery of God. It's been hidden. God hid it. He's only revealed it to a few, a select few. 
us. Isn't that incredible? Do we realize how precious the understanding we have is? If we understood how precious it is, maybe we would seek it harder than we do. Maybe that's what's wrong with our hearts. <coughs> God says, be wholehearted. You know, we have to think about this. We have to analyze it. We have to take it apart. We have to understand what is it about us that is not fully, wholeheartedly for God. And it's not an easy thing to determine and understand. Because we're all here to serve God. I think we all sincerely want to do that or we wouldn't be here. And I don't mean just here, I mean in God's church anywhere. It doesn't matter what part of the church we might be a, an official part of. It's still the church of God, and God called each and every one of us, no matter what organization we might be in, to His truth. But each of us then has to individually, wherever He is, examine what is wrong with each of us. We've approached that from the standpoint of Laodiceanism, and everybody says everybody's Laodicean but me. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. If we're going to be fitly framed together, like Christ, the chief cornerstone, then we have to be shaped, cut, hammered, honed, sanded to fit. And we need to see those things where we don't fit in. You know, we come in a variety of personalities. Some people are social by nature. Some people are loners by nature. The loners have to become more social. And some who are maybe too social need to cut it back a little and spend more time with God. We all need to spend more time with God, but just personalities are different. One's not necessarily worse than another. But we all have to adjust so that we all fit together well. So often in the world, it's, well, I never thought that person would do that. Took a gun and killed 12 people, you know, in a mall or something. All the neighbors and the relatives and the mother say, well, I don't believe it. Couldn't have happened. That wasn't, that wasn't him. How do you know what him was? There was something in him or her that wasn't right. Whatever it is inside us that needs changed, we need to ferret out, find, and change so that we all fit together the way God wants us to. <clears throat> Verse 10, to the intent that now to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. <coughs> God wants this whole world ultimately to understand the way of God, how God is, what God is, through the church. 
And one of the best ways for him to show that was to call people like you and me, who aren't much and didn't amount to much, and turn us into something that amounts to a great deal. That's why the hammering and the sawing and the trials and the trouble and the tribulation is so that we might be hewn and fitted to look like the chief cornerstone because the building has to look the same. Wouldn't the building look funny if you made part of a wall out of bricks and then you used hay bales and then you used two-by-fours and then you used uncut rocks and you had this whole thing that just didn't fit together, no rhyme or reason. No symmetry, no plan, no design, so that you could see how it all fits. Wouldn't be a very pretty building. So what God did was says, here's Christ. I want you all to pattern yourselves to look just like Him. Then when I put the building together with Him as a cornerstone, you're all going to look like Him. And this is going to be a beautiful building where the plan all fits together. There's nothing weird or odd in the design, but it looks like God. See why it is so important for God to keep grinding and sawing and polishing and sanding and cutting us so that we all look just right to fit. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand while we go through trials, troubles, difficulties, and so on. It's just part of the grinding and polishing process. It's not that God is against us. It's not that He's neglecting us. It shows His love, in fact, that He's willing to grind on us. Willing to sand us. Anybody that really cares about craftsmanship and building furniture takes the time and has the patience to sand it all down, get all the imperfections out, to make it look beautiful, smooth. And then the finish work can be done. That's what God's doing with us. He's not sanding us because He hates us. He's sanding us because He loves us. Just as a true craftsman in wood loves the wood. But He's not afraid to cut it, hack it, sand it, hammer it, whatever it needs to make it fit the chair that He's building. He wants it known through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, He was wise in choosing you, whatever your name is, wherever you are. He was wise in choosing you. Now, He wants that wisdom to be shown so that everybody on earth can see how wise He was. Was God wise when He chose Will McPherson? How about Vicki Durkee? Zaranda? Well, I just start naming names. I don't want to single anybody out. We, I, I suppose I should start down here and name us all. Was He wise when He chose you? 
Yes, he was. I don't care what you think. God doesn't do anything that is not wise. And if he chose you, that was wisdom. Now, in order to make his wisdom known to the whole world, he's going to grind and sand and saw on us until we look like Christ. That's his whole point. He loves us dearly. And he wants us to be like him. It is with great love and care that he's working on us so that it might be known by the church, the world will know. The principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. You know that there are times when the angels themselves wonder why God chose a certain one? They question it. Look at the Joshua there in, in Zechariah 3. The angel said, Wait. Oh. Christ said, it's all right, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. An example that comes to mind. There are others where the angels must have thought, why did you call that one? And then when God brought them to repentance, they leaped for joy. Wow, God could do that to that one? Because it's even hard for the angels in heavenly places sometimes to understand why God does what He does with you and me. But He is going to stay with this thing until even the angels are going to look at you and me and say, Ah, the infinite wisdom of God in calling that person. According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ our Lord. He's the chief cornerstone, and he called other stones, blockheads, or heads full of rocks, to fashion them and make them to fit his temple so that they could dwell with Christ forever. He uses another analogy of marriage. Christ is the husband, 144,000 are the bride, and the rest of the world are going to be children. And the family has to fit together in harmony. Wherefore, oh, wait a minute now, let's see. Twelve, in whom we have boldness and access with, access with confidence by the faith of him. If God called you, you should have great confidence in Him to get the job done with you. Don't shrink back. Don't say, I'm too weak, I'm too small, I'm too pitiful, I'm too this. We all are. Go to God in faith. Don't shrink back. Go boldly to the throne of grace. And ask for help and strength to be what God intended you to be. And he intends you to be worth something. He intends you to be like Christ himself. We should not be like whipped pups that pee on ourselves. We should go boldly before God's throne and ask for help in time of need. It's not easy to be like Christ. He knows that. He knew that when he called you. But you were very unchristlike. 
and that you needed to be changed. And he's working on it. And his word does not come back to him void. He is going to work a work in you until you fit in the temple. We can either come willingly, or we can be hammered on and sawed and cut a lot. How painful this is, is in part up to us. Verse 12, in whom, speaking of Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. <coughs> now to go to them, he had to go through shipwreck, through beatings, through stonings, through snake bites, through persecutions of all kinds. And he said, don't feel sorry for me. I was an enemy of God. I hated Christians. So he said, if I have to go through some hammering and sawing and sanding myself for your sake, don't feel sorry for me. Understand that God intends to make something out of me, Paul would say. For this cause, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord, Emmanuel the Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. He knew he couldn't do it on his own, and he knew they couldn't do it on their own. He knew they had to imbibe of, drink in of the Spirit of God, and be motivated by it. Because it takes some serious work to transform someone like you and me into the very image of Christ himself. It doesn't come easy. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, to understand what this is really all about, and to know the love of Christ, to feel it for you. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand how Christ would love us because we are so flawed. Our attitudes need so much adjustment. But he loves us and called us to become kings in the universe. Why do you love your baby that was born? You can't help it. I had a daughter that just called me up. She's about to turn 38. Told me she's pregnant. I said, oops. She said, yeah. I'll be 50 when it's 12. It alarmed her. But I said, you know what? When you're holding that baby in your arms, it may have dismayed you when you got pregnant, but you're going to love it. You'll love it. She says, I know it. I'm beginning to look forward to it already, even though I was dismayed at first. You can't help but love your kids. They wet on themselves. They soil their diapers. They cry. They make all kinds of messes. Food all over the table and on the floor and down their front. They're a mess, aren't they? 
but you love them with all your heart. Now, God wants you and me to understand that. That's why we have babies. Is that just because we are, He loves us. Now, He'll be happy when we quit slobbering and puking down our front, <laughs> soiling our diapers spiritually, won't He? But He loves us anyway. Just like a mother, a father loves a little baby. Can't help it. We have to understand the breadth, the height, the depth, the fullness of His love for us. It's easy for us to think, I don't deserve it, and then we don't do what we need to do because we are ashamed and frustrated and guilty and feel worthless. Have you ever had a baby that you thought was worthless? Not one of you has. God hasn't had one either that he thought was worthless. So get over yourself. Whining and crying and shrinking back and saying, I don't deserve it, is just an excuse for not performing. God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back, those who go forward to the saving of their soul. And to know the love of Christ. We need to come to know that He loves us in an unqualified way. A love that will never go away, but will always endure. When you think He doesn't, and you feel guilty, then you need to think about your children and how much you love them. It's beyond knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. He expects us to be full of God, to accept Christ's love, to accept His sacrifice. Why do we feel guilty? Because we don't think Christ's sacrifice was big enough for our sins. And we need to understand the fullness of the love of God and that His sacrifice was big enough for all our sins. And get over them and quit feeling sorry for ourselves. We've all made mistakes. We've all made terrible mistakes in our lives of one kind or another. Get beyond it and grow. Quit using it as a crutch, as an excuse not to grow. Come to understand the love of God. <clears throat> he hasn't given up on us, has he? It says there in Romans, He won't. Won't give up on us, Romans 8. So then who are we to give up on ourselves and act like it? No. We can fix it. He can fix it in us. Now to Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is able to do and perform at a higher level than we can even imagine in our lives. If we'll just yield to Him and be slaves and prisoners, as Paul said He was. He gave up. Everything that was important to him in life and put his entire being into serving God with all his heart. That's what Paul did. He said he counted being a Pharisee, a Benjamite, all the things that he named as dung, barnyard manure, compared to what he had found in Christ. 
So he gave it all up. We have trouble giving things up. We have trouble doing things God's way. But we need to come to understand His love that passes knowledge. It's beyond comprehension. And understand that He is able to do things in us that we would think impossible. You're going to see Him do some mighty, dramatic, powerful, wonderful things through some pretty common people in the next few years. Because He's God, and He can do it, and He will do it. He's promised it. Beyond what we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us, His power, unto Him be glory in the church, us. Glory of God in us, the church, by Emmanuel the Christ, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen, he says. He wasn't through with the letter, but he stopped to say amen to that. But this is an eternal plan that transcends anything that we've ever known on earth and beyond the imagination of anything that human beings could imagine. That God and Christ are going to come and live on this earth with their family and transform it into a world without tears, without pain, without suffering, without starvation, without disease, without murder, without thieving, without lying, without cheating, and on and on. He's able to do that. That is beyond the comprehension of anybody that lives on this earth today. It's beyond our imagination. I wouldn't know how to act in a world that isn't like the world today. So we need to have vision and transform this little group into what God intends the whole world to be. That's the vision we need to capture. That's the vision we need to live. And it's not easy to keep, not easy to get or to keep that vision. But give God the glory and grasp that He loves us, grasp that He wants to use us, and then Volunteer your every emotion, your every feeling, your every desire to his purpose instead of your own. That's what Paul did. And that's the reason God chose somebody like Paul, who had a lot and had to give it up and humble himself. And then he could be of use to God to call others to the same glorious purpose. And he's called us to help him bring his glory to the world. There's a lot of encouragement in here. And we need that kind of the love of God. That's Ephesians, the Ephesus church had it all, but they had lost that. And that we need to rekindle and examine ourselves and be sure that we have it. That we have that fervent zeal for God, where we're willing slaves and prisoners and wanting to do what He wants done. That's what He would have of us. Story's not over, but I'm out of time for today.